I'm John Caldera, president of Independence Institute. Isla Shapiro is a libertarian-minded constitutional scholar at the Manhattan Institute. But before that, he received a job offer to join the faculty of the law school at Georgetown University. But then he tweeted something his political enemies used to try to cancel him. This is the audio version of our television show, Devil's Advocate. You can watch that program by going to youtube.com and searching for our channel, IITV, which stands for Independence Institute TV, or just go to thinkfreedom.org. I hope you enjoy this discussion. This was a long time ago, but I remember on college campuses, they would have this thing they like to talk about. It was called free speech. It's a myth. So Mr. Shapiro here, I'm going to get your name wrong. Ilya. Ilya? Ilya? Ilya. Ilya Shapiro is now with the Manhattan Institute for a long time. The man from uncle. You're old enough to remember the man from uncle. I'm not, but people tell me, right? Ilya Kuryakin, right? Which one was he? He was the Russian. Was, oh, that's right. You're not Russian. Yeah. Are you? I was born in Moscow. You were born we, in Moscow? I was. Uh, I was, uh, you know, you've seen the Americans, right? I was a sleep yep. agent, but then the uh, the Soviet Union fell apart. And so now I have to make do as a constitutional scholar at a think tank. So, oh, that's um, cool. no, we, we, we immigrated to Canada when I was, when I was little, I grew up in Ontario and then came to the U S for college and law school. And, you know, like most immigrants, I do a job that most native born Americans won't. And, and that's defending the Constitution. All right, that's pretty good. <clears throat> you worked many years for Cato, which is a great free market organization. You now work for the Manhattan Institute, which you inform me it's not required that you only drink Manhattans. Old fashioned, by the way, old fashions now are, are the, all the rage. I haven't figured they that are, out. They are. Ever since <clears throat> Mad Men and, and Don Draper. Uh, oh, really? Ordering, yes, that's what they trace them to. It's like... Uh, the popularity of Pinot Noir uh, can be traced to the release of the Sideways movie. Um, but anyway, lots lots of tie-ins. Uh, My like mother that. used to drink Manhattans. A lot of sweet vermouth. Um, anyway. My favorite, my favorite drink is the Omar Bradley. Have you heard of that? No. So General Bradley in the North Africa campaign, World War II, um, was uh, after a meeting with, with Monty, right, Field Marshal, uh, Montgomery of, of the Brits um, went to a, a British officer's tent, uh, mess tent, and asked the barkeep. He's like, you know, I want some sort of brown liquid, but not neat and not cloyingly sweet. What, what can you do for me? The barkeep, I'm not going to do the Scottish accent or whatever it was, uh, looks around and says, well, I got some marmalade. So he puts a dollop of marmalade in the tumbler, uh, pours up the uh, whatever brown liquid. And that was that. And uh, the, the thing about marmalade equally works with strawberry preserves or, or whatever your favorite jam might be, but it slowly infuses without being instantly mixed like a, like a simple syrup. And um, you can do it with, uh, with no ice or full of ice or a little ice, whatever your preference and whatever your preference of brown liquid. So it's a very versatile drink and it's a good story. I've always been a scotch guy and I hate to admit it, I'm starting to find bourbon now. I don't know what this means. I don't want to insult anyone. <clears throat> but there's a world of bourbon out there, and I need to learn more. Yeah. Talking about learning more. So colleges is where you go to learn more. Colleges where you go to be exposed to new ideas. Ideas you might not even agree with, but you're there to argue them. So after years at Cato and the Cato Institute, where you filed lots of legal briefs, you got a job offer to go to Georgetown. What was that? What was that gig? It was at the law school, and it was at to, to be the executive director and a senior lecturer at the Georgetown uh, Center for the Constitution, which is a, a vital um, organization. It's about ten years old now, founded and and headed up by Randy Barnett, brilliant constitutional scholar, and very important because uh, as we learned in the saga that uh, we're about to discuss. The rest of the law school is the center against the Constitution. This is a prestigious law school. Georgetown is, is a big deal, if I understand it. I mean, I just, I majored in Frisbee with a minor in skirts when I went to the University of Colorado. So you lawyers, what you do, uh, I don't quite understand, but 
I know Georgetown is a well-respected place. And to go from Cato, which has a very distinct ideology, an ideology that the Constitution is there to protect individual liberties, to Georgetown, this is this is a big deal. So did you ever paint? I was, I was, I was at a point in my career where I thought, you know, I could keep doing what I'm doing. Um, but I want to, you know, I, I was about to turn 45 and I thought I, I want to have some different kind of impact, more teaching, more with a platform that's university that would look different when I appear on media rather than as a libertarian think tank. And, and, and that's, that, that was my thinking. I got this interesting, different opportunity. And it's also great to work with young minds and to, and to be an iconoclast, to be the guy on campus that sticks out and says, no, I'm going to say something different compared to most of your professors here. So what kind of furniture did you pick out for your office? <laughs> Even before I was allowed to get into my office, before my first day, uh, I managed, you know, this is how talented I am. I managed to get suspended uh, before my first day. Wait, 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 wait. So, <laughs> so you're a lawyer. So how is it that you could get suspended? You got the job offer. You accepted the job offer. This is a this is a prestigious. What did you do to get suspended? <laughs> I, let me take a guess. I'm thinking they found out about your disbarment, or they found <laughs> out that you uh, um, that you sexually harassed somebody at Cato, which at Cato I would assume would be standard <clears throat> standard operating procedure. But they found out about the bank robbery that you did. What <laughs> what? Criminal activity did you do or allegedly did that got you canceled, that, that you were suspended from this job before you even started? It's funny you mentioned bank robbery. There, there actually is a, a professor at Georgetown Law who uh, served his time in, in 10 years in federal prison for bank robbery and ultimately and became still, a jailhouse. And he's yeah, there he now. Be, yeah, he became a jailhouse lawyer, ultimately... Um, you know, changed his life around completely, ended up taking the bar. He's, you know, he fought, he's argued briefs and uh, cases in court and, and what have you. Really remarkable story. He's, uh, he's, a, he's a wonderful individual. But anyway, um, no, I You're, didn't I want to get back bank. to your crime. You must have committed <laughs> yes. a crime. Yes. You obviously were disbarred. Something substantial happened that they would have suspended your offer to have this wonderful job on the faculty of Georgetown, hit me. Yeah, well, uh, it was it was late night tweeting, John. Um, the day that uh, Justice Breyer, the news of his retirement broke, um, I was doing media that day because I'm, you know, I wrote this book on judicial nominations and the politics of America's highest court, Supreme Disorder. There's the uh, the paperback updated through uh, Katanji Brown Jackson. There's the hardcover that came out three years ago. Uh, so I'm a you know Supreme Court politics expert. So when when there's a when there's a vacancy, that's a that's a big media day for me. And I was doing that. I was in. in so this Austin, is Texas this is your business. job. This is your yeah. area of expertise. Right. And right. so you commented that, in your area of expertise. You that idiot. evening that right though that that evening uh, I I got back from a friend's uh, celebratory dinner. He had he, he was getting a new job uh, as it happens, and uh, and I was getting upset. Uh, about President Biden's determination to limit his candidate pool for the next justice by race and sex. He famously uh, was planning to and did fulfill his campaign pledge to pick a black woman. So I said on Twitter, as I was getting, you know, doom scrolling late at night, bad practice, and I fired off a hot take. I thought uh, if if I was a Democratic president, I would pick Sri Srinivasan, the chief judge of the D.C. Circuit, very respected judge, uh, was a very respected uh, appellate lawyer before that, uh, very progressive as well. Uh, and the cherry on top, he happens to be an Indian American immigrant. So he got diversity points as well. But I wrote, given today's hierarchy of intersectionality, uh, if Biden goes through with, with what he said, we will instead end up with someone less qualified. Uh, and I, But I didn't say less qualified, the, the, the limits of, of Twitter's characters I said we would end up with a lesser black woman. And uh, and then I went to bed. And by the time I woke up, this thing had exploded. My political enemies on Twitter 
uh, were snitch tagging Georgetown, trying to get my uh, my job ah. uh, revoked. And um, and the rest is history. What what ended up happening? I tell you what, those wait, first wait, wait, four wait, days. Can I ask so you? This was the last week. This was the last week of January. I was due to start February first, and those those first four days after this so-called scandal broke, uh, there were four days of hell. It was it was really terrible. Well, hang on. Let me let me focus in on this on this this hateful tweet of yours. You said this person would be a great pick. If I were the president, I would pick this person who is a qualified progressive. But because the president had drawn this, what I think is a stupid little box. I mean, what a, what a limiting little box to say, I'm going to choose somebody by the color of their skin and their genitals. So all, I mean, you have now just cut off all these terrific applicants for a job based on skin color and genitals makes no sense to me. There could be people who, who as a president, I would think, I want somebody who has this philosophy and this philosophy and reads the Constitution this way and that way. There's the person. Oh, that person, that person is Asian and has a penis. Sorry, that's the wrong person. I gotta find, it's just, it, it is, it is racism. It is complete and utter racism. Am, am I reading that wrong or am I a Neanderthal? That was the point that I was making. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't say it in the most, most artful terms. Uh, I would have, if I were writing an op-ed, uh, uh, then I would, I would do it a different way. But, but yes, the, the underlying point is one that 76% of Americans agreed with that Biden should have looked at all possible uh, nominees, um, at least according to a survey conducted by that right-wing rag, uh, ABC News. But you, and, but uh, you said lesser black woman, and I imagine right. those three words what stood out that people said, "Oh, you mean women? Black women are lesser." Isn't that what you meant, Ilya? Right. Or as the dean of uh, Georgetown, Bill Trainer, uh, characterized it, uh, you know, could be read as saying no black woman could ever be qualified for the Supreme Court, which is preposterous. It's not a reasonable reading of what I said, but that's how it was played uh, by the manufactured outrage mob. And you did this before you went to bed. Right. How dare you? <laughs> So let me ask you, if you had to do it over, because we all have that little remote control in our pocket that can zap us back 12 hours, if you could hit the rewind button, how would you have worded it differently? Or in retrospect, would you just let it happen so you could have enjoyed this, this moment of glory to show how truly awful people are um, in the, in today's cancel culture. I think that was an Adam Sandler movie from the nineties where yeah. you had this remote control yeah. where you could pause life and stuff. Um, uh, well, look, uh, I'm, I'm a higher profile person. Now I have a stronger platform. I get invited to speak and write and do all sorts of things that I wasn't before, which is a financial benefit, uh, as well. And by the way, during my suspension, during this investigation, we haven't talked about that, but the, the dean ultimately decided not to fire me, but to onboard me and suspend me with pay. Georgetown paid me not to work for four months while they investigated while they investigated whether my tweet uh, violated harassment and anti-discrimination. And by policies. the way, did it? They ultimately, so... <laughs> I'm curious. The, the resolution was... Some junior associate at the big white shoe expensive law firm that they hired to advise them on all this, Wilmer Hale, one of the you know biggest, most expensive law firms in the country. Um, four months later, some junior associate looked at the calendar and realized that I wasn't yet an employee when I tweeted. So I wasn't covered by these policies under which I was being investigated. So I, I celebrated that technical victory. But then I got the fine print from the diversity office, the Office of Institutional Diversity, Equity, and Affirmative Action, IDEA. And they, in this report, they made clear that while they're not making a finding that I violated the policies, they made clear that if ever I did or said anything that someone found offensive, 
then that would subject me to discipline, that that would create a hostile educational environment. So in effect, they, they, they were saying that, you know, if I weren't an employee, they, they wanted to find me uh, guilty and, and punish me uh, for that tweet, for, for that speech. But you asked me, what, what would I do in retrospect? No, look, the, the ordeal, I don't think, is justified by, um, you know, what's happened to me since, you know, moving on to Manhattan and getting another book deal. I'm now actually writing a book uh, that'll be published by HarperCollins about a year from now. Working title is Canceling Justice, the Illiberal Takeover of Legal Education. So building on my lived experience, as it were. Um, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't have tweeted that way. I would have, you know, gone on to, to get my Georgetown job and, and, and see what, what would happen from there. And my wife predicted that something like this would have happened to me eventually anyway. Uh, she didn't think that it would happen even before I started. Uh, but she was dubious that I would be able to survive in that kind of environment. And apparently she was uh, she was right. Um, but let me, let me tell uh, you, she is always right. Just, just <laughs> take that. Yeah. Um, let, let, let me go back just a little bit, because I, I didn't quite understand what the result of the investigation said. So you weren't an employee yet. So you weren't bound by the terms of their hypersensitive speech code but no their speech their speech to be clear john their speech code is actually very good it's protective of free speech it says that you know just because someone doesn't like what you say doesn't mean that you're uh somehow uh there's you know, actionable or anything like that uh but what they said was they, they they effectively said that i was harassing all black women or creating a uh, a hostile educational environment limiting their access to educational opportunities because they wouldn't want to take my class since I'm a racist misogynist, uh, things like that. So they, they, they basically said the next time that I said something that anyone could claim offense to, like, for example, when I during during the Supreme Court's consideration of the affirmative action cases last fall, if I had said, as I have been for decades, that using racial preferences is uh, unconstitutional, then which it is you know, some and someone complained about this. Uh, then that would have subjected me to discipline. So it was a very, it wasn't just directed at me, this report. It was, you know, to show all faculty and staff that uh, to put them on notice that you have to toe the politically correct line. And that that was the ultimate outcome. They cleared me because they said they had no jurisdiction uh, over me. But, but if, if I'm hearing you correctly, and I hope I'm not, if I'm hearing you correctly, it what they said was even worse, which was, if you are to express yourself as a professor, and if someone finds offense in that, they can fire you. That is, that is devastating. So in other words, if you were to say affirmative action, I'll, I'll put it in my words, affirmative action is clearly unconstitutional because it is, it is racial discrimination. It's just plain and simple. If you say that and someone is offended by that, therefore they don't go to your class because of it, well, now we're going to have to fire you because um, you're affecting education on our campus. That is intimidation. That, that means you cannot do your job. Absolutely, which is why four days after I was reinstated, I resigned. And uh, as one does, I, I published uh, my resignation letter in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, and the, the, the longer letter, the letter, whole letter, I think is four pages and it's some of my best lawyering that I've ever done. Um, it's available uh, publicly, you can, you can Google it. Um, I, I laid out this case of how they made it impossible for me to do my job. They, they set me up for a slow motion firing and I was not gonna participate in that. Incredible, incredible. So getting back to how I introduced this, I grew up in the shadow of, of a free speech movement, those heroes at Berkeley. And the idea was they took over the campus because the kids wanted to say something the administrators didn't want to hear, and that everyone had a right to speak. Somehow that has turned into this weird thing that everyone has a right to be heard. No one has a right to be heard. You have a right to speak. It's in our Constitution. And the college campus was a place for people to speak. Now it is a mandated shut up zone. You came out to Colorado a few weeks back and you were protested 
at the University of Denver. This is a private university. And you swung by and you were protested, which obviously was an anti-Semitic act because you're Jewish. And so these anti-Semitics came out to protest you being Jewish. Was, was that the protest? It was, I'm sure there was some of that on the student and faculty listserv that I wasn't privy to, but because it created a, such a lot of hullabaloo that I, I wasn't even aware of. In fact, I didn't even see the protesters because bizarrely the university reminiscent of Berkeley in the sixties shunted the protesters into these free speech zones. So they sort of, they, they didn't want to make national news of the sort that Stanford has been doing in that, that disruption of the federal judge lately right. or Yale last where, year. Where or my an own actual faculty has, member, an actual faculty member tried to shame the, the judge, the, the speaker to, to stop right. speaking. Right. The, the latest on that is that she is on leave, the associate dean of DEI, of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, who, who was haranguing the, the invited federal judge and casting doubt on the validity of Stanford's free speech policy. She's now on leave. There's a remarkable letter by the Stanford dean. We're getting ahead of ourselves that, that just came out yesterday uh, about uh, that incident. It's very much a moving target in the news. But at DU, uh, my event went on. Uh, I was not disrupted. I was not shouted down. There was a lot of security. I think it took five or six security officers, including one member of the, the Denver PD, uh, to come out and secure the place. And there were complaints, valid complaints, that this was overkill going the other way. Because look, the right to protest is a right too. As long as you're not uh, 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 sh shouting down a speaker, as long as you're not blocking the sight lines of those of the audience, you know, with signs, you should be able to have signs, you should be able to pass out flyers, as long as you're not blocking, you know, the means of aggress, creating a, a fire code violation or something like that. But they should be able to do that. But they 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 weren't in any event. My my event went off. There was they had us in a small room for whatever reason. Uh, about 50 students came well, what out. What exactly were they protesting? I was joking, of course, but my what, my what my, my unabashed uh, racism and white supremacy, as some of the flyers said. Uh, you know, I was there to talk about free speech on college campuses, ironically enough. The title of my event was Silencing Minorities, Academic Freedom and, on Campus. How, how, how do you handle this intellectual disconnect? This, this thing where we're talking about having free speech while people are trying to shut you down it kind of proves the very simple point, doesn't it? Let's assume for the sake of argument that you are a misogynistic racist. When they're trying to ban you, isn't it plainly obvious that they're only proving the point that you're trying to make, which is we need free speech on campus. And if they try to cancel you, well, haven't they just proven the point? Yeah, that's exactly right. There's there's not a lot of self-awareness there. And um, you know, you're, you're right to parallel that back to, or to contrast it back to the, the 60s when students were trying to speak and now tr students are saying some speech is too dangerous and it's active, quote, harm. There's this therapeutic language about you know denying the right to exist and making it hard to attend and dividing the your very community your, your very presence divides the community, said the Stanford DEI dean to the federal judge. Uh, just bizarre stuff. Silence is violence. Speech is violence. Um, just, yeah. It's just bizarre. Hey, your, your book just fell down. It did. It did. It couldn't take any more of the, uh, of the irrationality here. It, it has free will. That's right. There you go. Um, so you're about... Uh, 10, 12 years. Do you want to know? Do you want to know why all this is going on, John? This is what yeah. the subject of my next book is. Is um, well, there are lots of things going on, but uh, I think fundamentally, it's not the decades-old complaint that conservatives have about liberals taking over the faculty, and you know, academia is just so left-wing. Uh, there's a separate issue with what's taught and kind of most universities not having conservative professors in, in many departments. The Georgetown Law School has something like three and a half non-progressives out of the 150 on the faculty, which is why the dean actually celebrated hiring me uh, less than a week before he condemned my, my racism and all that. 
uh, because he then he could show his alumni donors that that he's he's for intellectual diversity. But anyway, uh, that's the, that's a separate issue, kind of ideological bias and diversity statements for hiring and things like this. But fundamentally, it's the bureaucracy, it's the bureaucratic bloat, and this started. Um, you know, after I, I was in college 25 years ago, I graduated law school 20 years ago. Uh, at a certain point, non-teaching staff passed the numbers, passed uh, instructors, yep. uh, teaching staff, around 2010 or so. And in the last 10 years, and especially in the last few years, uh, it's the DEI part, the diversity, equity, inclusion uh, offices that have been the majority of that growth in bureaucratic bloat. And these are offices that uh, are not tethered to traditions of academic inquiry or, or academic freedom standards uh, or the traditional mission of the university for truth seeking and engaging with ideas and, and education. They're there to promote uh, and advocate and indoctrinate a postmodern, illiberal uh, theory of, uh, of critical studies, not just critical race theory, but lots of things where there's no objective truth and everything is a matter of power hierarchies and you look at different people's uh, uh, relative level of oppression to see how valid is what they might have to say. And you look at you know, you know, using race and gender prisms for, for, for evaluating any text, all of these sorts of things. They come in there, these bureaucrats, and they have an incentive to justify their existence and grow their budget, just like bureaucrats in the public sector do. So uh, given that the demand for racism and other um, you know, violations of civil rights far um, outstrips the supply, they have to manufacture them and they have to subvert classical liberal values of speech and due process and, and all the rest of it. And it's really that bureauc bureaucratization that has uh, cowed administrators, cowed deans and presidents and provosts um, uh, into allowing this vocal minority radical mob uh, to 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 run the place. And let me, that's let me see what... if I can let me see if I can echo that back to you and tell me if I've got it right. Yeah. And I I will try it in my non-lawyerly speak. So the exact oh, same... I was I wasn't talking to you about the dormant commerce clause and the uh, standards of scrutiny and whatnot. I can lawyer it up if you no, want. Well, I remember, I, I have a degree in frisbee, so. <laughs> I, so that's like that's like my master's degree when I was in London. I studied beer, theater, and rugby, and they they gave me a master's in international relations for traveling around Europe. That's not bad. So it's the same thing in in K through twelve education. Never before have we spent more money for K twelve education, and you wonder, well, why is it that we continue to have the same number of students per teacher, but we keep pouring the amount of money in, uh, but yet there are more and more people inside education. And if you look at it, we should have half as many kids in each classroom. Well, because the employees are all staff members. There are bureaucrats everywhere. You know, if, if, um, if, we, if those employers were, if those bureaucrats were teachers, we'd have 12 people, 12 kids per class, not 25 kids per class. And the same thing in higher ed, we're paying more and more and more in tuition, more and more in subsidies to higher ed, but we're not getting more teachers, we're not getting more professors, we're getting more administrators. And those administrators are running the organizations, they're running the schools, and a lot of them are these cancel culture, victimization celebrating, DEI, um, directors. These are the people who bow at the altar of victimhood. It used to be in America that we idolized merit, that we thought that the way in America is uh, you achieve and you change your life. Now we see merit in the way of how many boxes you can check on the list of victimhood going back to the terrible, awful, misogynistic, and racist tweet, here's, we're looking for a Supreme Court justice that checks the woman box and African-American box. If only we could have um, LGBT box, amputee box, 
and left-handed box, then we would have had the perfect nominee. This is a dangerous thing going on in, in schools. And I wonder if, even if old school professors worry about this. I'm of the age, I'm about 10, 12 years older than you. And I remember getting beaten into my head from the old school ACLU types, the old Americans for, or people for the American way types, who would say these stupid things, like the ends don't justify the means. I will, um, I don't agree with you, but I will defend to my death your right to, to say it. Those type of people who put principle first. And I worry that, that now we're at a point where the ends justify everything. And if the ends justify everything, well, firing a guy like you only makes sense. Yeah, what the, what the current illiberal mob and those DEI directors and, and associate deans and provosts uh, say to that is, okay, Boomer, that old school liberalism is, is no good anymore because of the systemic racism that we have to battle um, and the structures that we have to tear down uh, that uh, um, you know, don't lift up uh, underprivileged voices of various kinds. And so, yeah, there are a lot of old school liberals that are afraid of their students. And, and we've seen lots of campus surveys come out. FIRE is a wonderful organization, Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, Heterodox Academy. There are a number of people that have done these campus surveys and um, nobody feels comfortable on campus, faculty, students. The only people that feel comfortable talking, speaking uh, their mind are the far left. Anyone else uh, does not. Uh, because of this self-censorship cancel culture, you'll get in trouble if you misspeak, if you haven't downloaded the latest uh, buzzwords and politically correct terminology. And so everyone's constantly walking on eggshells. All of this obviously is in stark contrast to the mission of the university to grapple with ideas, the mission of a law school to learn how to advocate on different sides of different questions. Um, even on popular causes. Uh, you know, today's law school, that mob in, in Stanford a couple of weeks ago with the federal judge would say that you know some people, some ideas are too dangerous to even listen to, let alone have to grapple with um, and can't be platformed. Um, that's not going to go over very well in a court of law when they're practicing, but um, maybe they're all looking to get jobs in the DEI offices of private or public sector uh, organizations. And we've been talking about this. We've been using this buzzword. Let's just be clear. The, the words themselves sound pretty good. You know, diversity, having people from different backgrounds give different perspectives, you know, rather than everybody having the same perspective and kind of group think and whatever. You know, diversity, is, that sounds good. Uh, equity, centuries old Anglo-American legal tradition of courts of equity or more broadly fairness. Well, who could disagree with being treating people fairly and equally? Or inclusion, you want people to feel welcome uh, at their job, at their school, wherever they might be. So all of that is great. It's like puppies and rainbows. Uh, but the way that it's been transformed is in a very Orwellian sense to mean the opposite of what those words actually mean. So diversity goes against intellectual diversity. Equity stands for equality of outcome, hobbling those, uh, treating things like merit and academic rigor and excellence as uh, racist terms that are not, uh, you know, uh, uh, beyond the pale. Uh, and inclusion means excluding those who disagree with the prevailing uh, radical orthodoxy. And so these uh, growing offices that indoctrinate into that kind of, as I said, postmodern, illiberal, not liberal, illiberal ideology are, uh, have spread like a cancer and, and made uh, higher education. And most alarmingly, law schools, I, I suppose even more alarmingly, medical schools as well, um, uh, not factories of merit and excellence and pursuit of knowledge, um, uh, but these uh, something out of the Chinese uh, uh, cultural revolution with struggle sessions and tearing down the, the old values to be replaced with a kind of year zero concept. I want to use the same DEI rules on the football field. I want I want um, the Kansas City Chiefs, not only do they need to change their name, but to use the same racial 
a DEI. My wife's from Kansas City, so that's right. close to home. It's usually the exact same thing, uh, that the same racial structures and victim structures need to be used throughout the team. So I want the same um, racial breakdown of the, of the uh, uh, society to show up on their team. And we'll, we'll see, uh, see if it works. None of this merit stuff when choosing players. I want, I want um, diversity. I want equity and inclusion on the Chiefs team. And let's see how they do next year. That's, that's what I want. Um, when you, I, I, detailed question. The morning after, you wake up, the tweet is all over. Did you try to say something or put out a tweet saying, what I, the point of the tweet was this. Was there, the, was the nuance, did you try to clarify the nuance of the tweet or did you just let it go? Yeah, I, um, I did uh, very briefly say this got misunderstood. Uh, I'm taking this down. Clearly what I meant was, you know, don't use these, these categories. And um, I, I issued a, a further um, explanation slash, you know, apology for using bad, bad language, not for, you know, doing the, for, for making the underlying point to the, to the faculty. Um, because that was uh, as part of my, my dual strategy of having a, both a public campaign and a private campaign to, right. to keep my job, to, you know, maintain my reputation and all that. Um, you know, I, I, I did not uh, abnegate myself. And as I was invited to uh, by you know, using certain kind of you know, language of critical race theory and talk about systemic racism and, and bend the knee and all of that, yeah. I did say, look, uh, this was a failure of communication. I'm supposed to be a communication professional to convey ideas. And, and I did that poorly here. Sorry about that. I understand some people, uh, 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 you know, that made some people feel bad. I, I you know, truly, sincerely apologize for, uh, for, for, for that. But here's, you know, I think it's, it's yeah. anyway, I mean, the, the, the very basic point, but no, it's uh, for, you know, for the general mob, that's, 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 that's no good for well, the, it's not more, a than, more than mob. a thousand, more than a thousand people that uh, students, alumni and professors at Georgetown that signed a letter uh, calling for me to be fired. Um, that, that's, that, that's not the point. But the thing is, they knew what you meant. They didn't care about you clarifying your point. They knew exactly what you meant. For them, the ends justified everything. Yeah. It wasn't, I defend to my death your right to say it. It wasn't that you are innocent until proven guilty. It wasn't any of those civil liberties, ACLU of the past. This was nothing of the free speech movement of the 60s and 70s. This was not Berkeley. This was, we want to hang this man. And it was the politics of personal destruction. Yeah. And those yeah. thousand people who signed that petition, they were out for your scalp. That was it, plain and simple. And it is ugly, and it is shameful. And that's now the world we live in. So now we know that free speech is, is tossed aside. It no longer exists. And I'm, I'm angry that your colleagues, the people, the good liberals, the, the people of the ACLU who fought for terrible people like neo-Nazis. The, the, the former ACLU, the current ACLU yeah. is, uh, Agreed. is iffy. Agreed. Although, although the legal director of the ACLU, who's a faculty member at Georgetown Law, David Cole, did write an op-ed saying, yes, Ilya's comments were racist, but he shouldn't have been fired for them. So at least there was that. But think about this. The ACLU of old had Jewish attorneys who fought for despicable people like neo-Nazis in Skokie, Illinois, to have the freedom to say despicable things and march. That was putting principle over anything else. These were true civil rights heroes. Where are they now? I'll tell you, a lot of them are still working in academia in places like Georgetown and know what is going on is wrong, but they are cowardly and won't stand up. And shame on them. 
They've got tenure. They know this is wrong. There are students who know this is wrong but won't stand up because they cannot stay, take the heat and they don't want to be persecuted and they want jobs. I get this. There are editors and editorialists and columnists who know this is wrong, but they are too scared to stand up. I'm glad you're doing this. I'm glad Manhattan hired you. I am glad Cato hired you. And I want to call out those people who should be standing beside you and saying, we've got to be better than this. Whether we would agree with him or not, we cannot allow this cancel culture to shut people up. We can't. Give, give me, well, let's Kate, put, Kato, let, Kato was silent, by the way, throughout my whole uh, thing. That's a, a separate discussion. But, you know, I had, I had friends, individuals, of course, but Cato institutionally said nothing. Did you leave on bad terms? I'm surprised. No, no, no it's, um, it's a subject for, for a different discussion. But uh, Cato tries to stay out of culture wars. I and see. Um, this, this is seen as uh, this debate over DEI, CRT, um, modern day political correctness, I guess, is, is seen as a, as a culture war issue. I don't see it as, uh, listen, I am anything but a moralist. I, I am, I'm a degenerate right down to my bones, but I tell you, free speech is something we need to fight for. Um, and I say that as a proud misogynist myself. So let me, <laughs> let me leave it here. Let me ask you this last question. If you could wave the magic wand, if you could have a policy, if you could make a change, if you could twist a knob somewhere in, in the culture, if you could if you could pass a law, if you could do something, what's the answer? It has to be multifaceted. And deans and presidents and provosts, department chairs, these are largely not woke radicals or social justice warriors. Let's be clear about that. They are precisely afraid. They're spineless cowards. Um, and so there has to be external asymmetric pressure applied to them to force them to do what's obviously the right thing, which is to not engage in, in speech and thought police and uh, preserve due process and, and, uh, and things like that. Um, and that means pressure from alumni. That means shining media light. Um, you know, this will, again, what's going on at Stanford right now is very interesting. The, the dean didn't end up uh, disciplining uh, the students who were disrupting. She said it was too hard to uh, 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 pick and choose who, who violated, the, who uh, stepped across the line and who was just engaged in normal pro uh, protest. I think that's a, that's a cop out. But um, she did apologize to the judge. She did say the, the, the DEI dean is suspended at this point or on leave. But not fired. Um, how interesting. Not, not yet. We'll see. Probably they're they're investigating. They, how, uh, we'll but, see but what how, happens. How in interesting universe. is it? But anyway, it? but let me you know, let me yeah. finish answering Go your ahead. question. Go ahead. The um, but this is because of the media spotlight. Or similarly, about two months ago, there was an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. Investigative reporter John Saylor uh, uh, found through FOIA documents showing how Texas Tech, for its biology department, was hiring based on diversity statements, and that one op-ed shamed the Texas Tech president the next day to say, no, we're not going to do that. That's inappropriate. We're reviewing all of our hiring policies. So what I've come to learn is that a lot of this stuff, while crazy and, and, and evil, is, to mix metaphors, uh, Potemkin villages guarded by paper tigers. So when you have federal judges like Jim Ho and, and Lisa Branch saying, we're not going to hire our clerks from Yale until they shape up uh, their culture of free speech. That had an immediate impact. Apparently, again, still a moving target. We're still in the eye of this storm. But that made news. That, that caught people's attention. Um, when you have uh, legislatures passing laws or introducing laws to defund DEI structures or remove diversity statements and mandatory trainings, I, I, I came up with model legislation along with Chris Rufo, my colleague at MI. Uh, and um, and the Goldwater Institute, Matt Bienberg, their direction, director of education policy, model legislation to simply cut out DEI, not civil rights officers, not those lawyers and their staffs who comply with federal and state civil rights laws, but these folks who aren't doing something that's a legal requirement, but instituting this ideology that we've been talking about, uh, or getting rid of um, um, uh, identity-based preferences for hiring and admissions, not just 
racial preferences for admissions that the Supreme Court is likely going to get rid of, but uh, more broadly than that. So there's room for legislation, media attention, alumni pressure, both public and private in terms of donations and statements, um, you know, judges, uh, lots of different ways that um, pressure can be applied. And, you know, six, eight months ago, when I joined uh, MI, when I resigned from Georgetown nine months ago, I was completely pessimistic. I was despairing. I thought society more broadly, there's a lot of things going on as people are uh, paying attention, starting to pay attention and realize uh, the weird stuff that's being done. Academia, though, I thought, the, you know, beyond the point of no return, critical mass has been reached and it's just illiberal all the way down. But I'm seeing that in some places it doesn't take very much to push back on this. So we'll see. It'll it'll take a while. It's interesting it's the way you put so it. Far. Let me let me kick it back and see if I've got it right. I see a failure in leadership and I understand how this happens. In politics, we think politicians are leaders. They're not. They are movable pieces on a game board, and they respond to a few different pressure points. They respond to how media pushes them. They respond to how special interests pushes them, and they respond to how constituents push them. And whichever one has the most push, that's the way they go. They're in this vice, and they get pushed. It might look like leadership. Very rarely is it leadership. And so they respond that way. In business, CEOs respond to those special interests. When you see uh, Walt Disney's uh, CEO, Chapek, cave into DEI uh, special interests, which are their employees, no, it's only because they're a special interest that are tightly organized and, and very loud. Other, other CEOs go, thank you, we accept all people here, but now let's get back to our, our business, which is uh, making a profit for our shareholders and making our customers happy. And then it goes away. In academia, it seems like what I'm hearing is something similar. Those university presidents, those deans, those provosts, they need a little help. They need a little backbone to do the right thing. They are hearing it from their administrators who have been overloaded by DEI folks and students and all these pressure groups. They need to hear it from employers who are gonna be hiring these graduates. They need to hear it from their alumni. They need to hear it from their customers, meaning parents and their kids that no, we're not gonna go to these schools if this is the way it's gonna be. Uh, there are others out there who have your back. You need to put an end to this silliness. Is that what I'm hearing? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. They need to, they are like politicians. They're careerist bureaucrats who have climbed that greasy pole and, um, and they need, uh, you know, when I, when I was, my dealings with Bill Trainer, the Georgetown law dean, who's a, a very good legal historian, I should say. I'm sure I don't agree with him politically on on, on everything or, or even a lot of things, but he's a, a very good legal historian. Uh, but as an administrator, he's weak. And when I met with him during, uh, you know, those first few days when he was deciding what to do initially, and then later on uh, towards the end of the invest, the so-called investigation period, um, he was like a deer in headlights. Like, you know, he, he really would rather have not been in that position um, because it wasn't about principle one way or another for him. It was about how do I extricate myself from this situation? And I think he did a, a great disservice to on his own terms, uh, how he handled everything. But anyway, that that's right. What, what you're saying is you have to use these asymmetric pressure points because it's not simply uh, appeals to first principle that are, that are going to move decision makers. And it seems, at least to a guy like me, it seems so simple. If I was your new boss, I would look at this and say, hey, Shapiro, clarify this statement. Apologize for being uh, in inarticulate in 140 characters and make it clearer. And then uh, Wolves, shut up. He's not my employee yet. Uh, I look forward to all sorts of wonderful discussions when he gets on board in a few days. That's it. That's how the University of Chicago, my law school alma mater, would have, would have handled it. And that's why they don't have those kinds of 
issues there. Um, in fact, the gold standard for free speech on campus is called the Chicago Principles on free speech. And then there's also something called the Chicago trifecta. You add into that the Calvin report about institutional neutrality on controversial social political issues uh, and the Schill report about not having ideological hiring. Uh, you know, University of Chicago has uh, figured it out. People want to read some of your work. They want to buy one of your books. They want to follow you at Manhattan Institute. Where's a good place for them to go? So I tweet at I Shapiro and my, my Twitter bio has some links. If you Google my name, Ilya Shapiro, Manhattan Institute, you'll find um, stuff there. I also have a Substack. That's an email newsletter, Shapiro's Gavel, which there's a, a free option, a paid option. Uh, lots of different stuff goes on there. Um, so, um, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm active. You Google me every now and again, you'll find, you'll find new stuff. And people have been asking, uh, they'd like to know your social security number and your mother's maiden name. Uh, you, you, if you email me um, uh, for the limited time, $999, if you, if you wire that to me, I will send that information directly. Terrific. And your birthday. Right. Hey, Ilya, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. Uh, I really enjoy the work you do, and please keep on doing it. Next time uh, I'm in Denver, we'll, we'll have to do this in person and maybe as, a, as an apres ski recording. I like to do, you know, combine... Uh, my visits to the slopes when I'm when I'm out your way. Well, we've got a lot of booze here, so we'll do it over some liquor <laughs> too. Sounds good. Thank you so much. Take care. If you've enjoyed this episode of Devil's Advocate, I hope you'll share it with a friend. And I hope you'll subscribe and follow the show. We have new ones released weekly. Remember, this audio was taken from our TV show. To watch it, just search the letters IITV for Independence Institute TV on YouTube for this and many other great conversations. 